welcome to MTC Audio Lab, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. MTC Audio Lab is theatre for your ears, bringing great dramatic texts to life with some of your favourite stage actors. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Bunwarung, the first peoples of country on which these recordings took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. In this episode, we continue Henry James's gothic horror, The Turn of the Screw, in a reading directed by MTC Associate Artistic Director, Sarah Goods. Turn of the Screw by Henry James Chapter 15 The business was practically settled from the moment I never followed him. It was a pitiful surrender to agitation, but my being aware of this had somehow no power to restore me. I only sat there on my tomb and read into what my little friend had said to me the fullness of its meaning. What I said to myself, above all, was that Miles had got something out of me and that the proof of it for him would be just this awkward collapse. He had got out of me that there was something I was afraid of and that he should probably be able to make use of my fear to gain, for his own purpose, more freedom. My fear was of having to deal with the intolerable question of the grounds of his dismissal from school for that was really but the question of the horrors gathered behind. That his uncle should arrive to treat with me of these things was a solution that, strictly speaking, I ought now to have desired to bring on. But I could so little face the ugliness and the pain of it that I simply procrastinated and lived from hand to mouth. The boy, to my deep discomposure, was immensely in the right, was in a position to say to me, either you clear up with my guardian the mystery of this interruption of my studies, or you cease to expect me to lead with you a life that's so unnatural for a boy. What was so unnatural for the particular boy I was concerned with was this sudden revelation of a consciousness and a plan. That was what really overcame me, what prevented my going in. I walked round the church, hesitating, hovering. I reflected that I had already with him hurt myself beyond repair. Therefore, I could patch up nothing, and it was too extreme an effort to squeeze beside him into the pew. He would be so much more sure than ever to pass his arm into mine and make me sit there for an hour in close, silent contact with his commentary on our talk. For the first minute since his arrival... I wanted to get away from him. As I paused beneath the high east window and listened to the sounds of worship, I was taken with an impulse that might master me, I felt completely, should I give it the least encouragement. 
I might easily put an end to my predicament by getting away altogether. Here was my chance. There was no one to stop me. I could give the whole thing up, turn my back and retreat. It was only a question of hurrying again for a few preparations to the house, which the attendance at church of so many of the servants would practically have left unoccupied. No one, in short, could blame me if I should just drive desperately off. What was it to get away, if I got away only till dinner? That would be in a couple of hours, at the end of which I had the acute provision my little pupils would play at innocent wonder about my non-appearance in their train. I got, so far as the immediate moment was concerned, away. I came straight out of the churchyard and, thinking hard, retraced my steps through the park. It seemed to me that by the time I reached the house, I had made up my mind I would fly. The Sunday stillness in which I met no one fairly excited me with a sense of opportunity. Were I to get off quickly this way, I should get off without a scene, without a word. My quickness would have to be remarkable. Tormented in the hall with difficulties and obstacles, I remember sinking down at the foot of the staircase, suddenly collapsing there on the lowest step, and then, with a revulsion, recalling that it was exactly where, more than a month before, in the darkness of night, and just so bowed with evil things, I had seen the spectre of the most horrible of women. At this I was able to straighten myself. I went the rest of the way up. I made in my bewilderment for the schoolroom, where there were objects belonging to me that I should have to take. But I opened the door to find, again, in a flash, my eyes unsealed. In the presence of what I saw, I reeled straight back into my resistance. Seated at my own table in clear noonday light, I saw a person whom, without my previous experience, I should have taken for some housemaid, who might have stayed at home to look after the place, and who, availing herself of rare relief from observation, had applied herself to the considerable effort of a letter to her sweetheart. There was an effort in the way that, while her arms rested on the table, her hands with evident weariness supported her head. But at the moment I took this in, I had already become aware that, in spite of my entrance, her attitude strangely persisted. Then it was, with the very act of its announcing itself, that her identity flared up in a change of posture. She rose, not as if she had heard me, but with the indescribable grand melancholy of indifference and attachment, and within a dozen feet of me stood there as my vile predecessor. Dishonoured and tragic, she was all before me. But even as I fixed and for memory secured it, the awful image passed away. Dark as midnight in her black dress, her haggard beauty and her unutterable woe, she had looked at me long enough to appear to say that her right to sit at my table was as good as mine to sit at hers. While these instants lasted, indeed, I had the extraordinary chill of feeling that it was I who was the intruder. It was as a wild protest against it that actually addressing her, you terrible, miserable woman, I heard myself break into a sound that, by the open door, rang through the long passage and the empty house. 
She looked at me as if she heard me, but I had recovered myself and cleared the air. There was nothing in the room the next minute but the sunshine and a sense that I must stay. Chapter 16 I had so perfectly expected that the return of my pupils would be marked by a demonstration that I was freshly upset at having to take into account that they were dumb about my absence. Instead of gaily denouncing and caressing me, they made no allusion to my having failed them, and I was left for the time on perceiving that she too said nothing to study Mrs. Gross's odd face. I did this to such purpose that I made sure they had in some way bribed her to silence. A silence that, however, I would engage to break down on the first private opportunity. This opportunity came before tea. I secured five minutes with her in the housekeeper's room where, in the twilight, I found her sitting in pained placidity before the fire. So I see her still. So I see her best facing the flame from her straight chair in the dusky, shining room. Oh, yes, they asked me to say nothing, and to please them so long as they were there, of course, I promised. But what had happened to you? I only went with you for the walk. I had then to come back to meet a friend. A friend? You? Oh, yes. I have a couple. But did the children give you a reason? For not alluding to your leaving us. Yes, they said you would like it better. Do you like it better? No, I like it worse. Did they say why I should like it better? No, Master Miles only said we must do nothing but what she likes. I wish indeed he would. And what did Flora say? Oh, Miss Flora was too sweet. She said, oh, of course, of course, and I said the same. You were too sweet, too. I can hear you all. But nonetheless, between Miles and me, it's now all out. All out? But what, Miss? Everything. It doesn't matter. I've made up my mind. I came home for a talk with Miss Jessel. A talk? Do you mean she spoke? It came to that. I found her on my return in the schoolroom. And what did she say? Oh, that she suffers the torments. Do you mean of the lost? Of the lost, of the damned. And that's why... To share them. To share them? She wants Flora. <gasps> As I've told you, however, it doesn't matter. Because you've made up your mind? But to what? To everything. And what do you call everything? Why, sending for their uncle. Oh, miss, in pity do. Ah, but I will, I will. I see it's the only way. What's out, as I told you, with Miles is that he thinks I'm afraid to. 
and has ideas of what he gains by that. He shall see he's mistaken. Yes. Yes, his uncle shall have it here from me on the spot, and before the boy himself, if necessary, that if I'm to be reproached with having done nothing again about more school... Yes, miss. Well, there's that awful reason. But which? Why, the letter from his old place. You'll show it to the master? I ought to have done so on the instant. Oh, no. I'll put it before him, that I can't undertake to work the question on behalf of a child who has been expelled. For we've never in the least known what. For wickedness. For what else? When he's so clever and beautiful and perfect. Is he stupid? Is he untidy? Is he infirm? Is he ill-natured? He's exquisite. So it can be only that. And that would open up the whole thing. After all, it's their uncle's fault. If he left here such people... He didn't really in the least know them. The fault's mine. Well, you shan't suffer. The children shan't. I was silent a while. We looked at each other. Then what am I to tell him? You needn't tell him anything. I'll tell him. Do you mean you'll write? Well, how will you communicate? I tell the bailiff. He writes. And should you like him to write our story? My question had a sarcastic force that I had not fully intended, and it made her, after a moment, inconsequently break down. The tears were again in her eyes. Ah, uh, Miss, you write. Well, tonight. And on this we separated. Chapter 17 I went so far in the evening as to make a beginning. The weather had changed back. A great wind was abroad, and beneath the lamp in my room, with Flora at peace beside me, I sat for a long time before a blank sheet of paper, and listened to the lash of the rain and the batter of the gusts. Finally I went out, taking a candle. I crossed the passage and listened a minute at Miles's door. What, under my endless obsession, I had been impelled to listen for was some betrayal of his not being at rest. And presently, caught one, but not in the form I had expected, his voice tinkled out. I say, you there? Come in. It was a gaiety in the gloom. I went in with my light and found him in bed very wide awake, but very much at his ease. Well, what are you up to? I stood over him with my candle. How did you know I was there? Why, of course I heard you. Did you fancy you made no noise? You're like a troop of cavalry. Then you weren't asleep? Not much. I lie awake and think. I had put my candle designedly a short way off, and then, as he held out his friendly old hand to me, had sat down on the edge of his bed. What is it that you think of? 
What in the world, my dear, but you? Oh, the pride I take in your appreciation doesn't insist on that. I had so far rather you slept. Well, I think also, you know, of this strange business of ours. I marked the coolness of his firm little hand. Of what strange business, Miles? Why, the way you bring me up, and all the rest. I fairly held my breath a minute, and even from my glimmering taper there was light enough to show how he smiled up at me from his pillow. What do you mean by all the rest? Oh, you know, you know. I could say nothing for a minute. Though I felt, as I held his hand and our eyes continued to meet, that my silence had all the air of admitting his charge, and that nothing in the whole world of reality was perhaps at that moment so fabulous as our actual relation. Certainly you shall go back to school, if it be that that troubles you. But not to the old place. We must find another, a better. How could I know it did trouble you, this question, when you never told me so, never spoke of it at all? His clear listening face, framed in its smooth whiteness, made him for the minute as appealing as some wistful patient in a children's hospital, and I would have given, as the resemblance came to me, all I possessed on earth, really to be the nurse who might have helped to cure him. Do you know you've never said a word to me about your school? I mean the old one, never mentioned it in any way. He seemed to wonder. He smiled with the same loveliness. But he clearly gained time. He waited. He called for guidance. Haven't I? It wasn't for me to help him. It was for the thing I had met. Something in his tone and the expression of his face, as I got this from him, set my heart aching with such a pang as it had never known. So unutterably touching was it to see his little brain puzzled, and his little resources taxed to play, under the spell laid on him, a part of innocence and consistency. No, never from the hour you came back. You've never mentioned to me one of your masters or your comrades nor the least little thing that ever happened to you at school. Never, little Miles. No, never have you given me an inkling of anything that may have happened there. Therefore you can fancy how much I'm in the dark. Until you came out that way this morning you had since the first hour I saw you, scarce ever made a reference to anything in your previous life. You seemed so perfectly to accept the present. It was extraordinary how my absolute conviction of his secret porosity made him appear as accessible as an older person, imposed him almost as an intellectual equal. I thought you wanted to go on as you are. I don't. I don't. I want to get away. You're tired of Bly? Oh. No. I like Bly. Well, then? You know what a boy wants. You want to go to your uncle? <laughs> Can't get off with that. 
My dear, I don't want to get off. You can't. Even if you do, you can't. You can't. My uncle must come down and you must completely settle things. If we do, you may be sure it will be to take you quite away. Well, don't you understand that's exactly what I'm working for? You'll have to tell him about the way you've let it all drop. You'll have to tell him a tremendous lot. And how much will you, Miles, have to tell him? There are things he'll ask you. Very likely. But what things? The things you've never told me. To make up his mind what to do with you. He can't send you back. Oh, I don't want to go back. I want a new field. He said it with such admirable serenity, and doubtless it was that very note that most evoked for me the poignancy, the unnatural, childish tragedy of his probable reappearance at the end of three months with all this bravado and still more dishonour. It overwhelmed me now that I should never be able to bear that, and it made me let myself go. I threw myself upon him, and in the tenderness of my pity I embraced him. Oh, dear little Miles, dear little Miles. My face was close to his, and he let me kiss him, simply taking it with indulgent good humour. Well? Is there nothing, nothing at all that you want to tell me? He turned off a little, facing round toward the wall and holding up his hand to look at as one had seen sick children look. I've told you. I told you this morning. That you just want me not to worry you? He looked round at me now, as if in recognition of my understanding him, then ever so gently. To let me alone. There was even a singular little dignity in it, something that made me release him, yet when I had slowly risen, linger beside him. Oh, God knows I never wished to harass him, but I felt that merely at this to turn my back on him was to abandon, or, to put it more truly, to lose him. I've just begun a letter to your uncle. Well then, finish it! What happened before? Before what? Before you came back. And before you went away. What happened? I caught for the very first time a faint consenting consciousness. It made me drop on my knees beside the bed and seize once more the chance of possessing him. Oh, dear little Miles. Dear little Miles, if you knew how I want to help you. It's only that. It's nothing but that. And I'd rather die than give you a pain or do you a wrong. I'd rather die than hurt a hair of you. Oh, dear little Miles, I, I just want you to help me to save you. But I knew in a moment after this that I had gone too far. The answer to my appeal was instantaneous, but it came in the form of an extraordinary blast and chill, a gust of frozen air and a shake of the room as great as if in the wild wind the casement had crashed in. Ah! I jumped to my feet again and was conscious of darkness. So for a moment we remained. 
while I stared about me and saw that the drawn curtains were unstirred, and the window tight. Why, the candle's out! It was I who blew it out. Chapter 18 The next day after lessons, Mrs. Gross found a moment to say to me quietly, Have you written yet? Yes, I've written. But I didn't add for the hour that my letter, sealed and directed, was still in my pocket. There would be time enough to send it before the messenger should go to the village. Meanwhile, there had been, on the part of my pupils, no more brilliant, more exemplary morning. It was exactly as if they had both had at heart to gloss over any recent little friction. They performed the dizziest feats of arithmetic, soaring quite out of my feeble range, and perpetrated in higher spirits than ever geographical and historical jokes. It was conspicuous, of course, in Miles in particular, that he appeared to wish to show how easily he could let me down. This child, to my memory, really lives in a setting of beauty and misery that no words can translate. There was a distinction all his own in every impulse he revealed. Never was a small natural creature to the uninitiated eye all frankness and freedom a more ingenious, a more extraordinary little gentleman. He had never, at any rate, been such a little gentleman as when, after our early dinner on this dreadful day, he came round to me and asked if I shouldn't like him for half an hour to play to me. David playing to Saul could never have shown a finer sense of the occasion. It was literally a charming exhibition of tact of magnanimity. He sat down at the old piano and played as he had never played. And if there are those who think he had better have been kicking a football, I could only say that I wholly agree with them. For at the end of a time, that under his influence I had quite ceased to measure, I started up with a strange sense of having literally slept at my post. It was after luncheon and by the schoolroom fire, and yet I hadn't really in the least slept. I had only done something much worse. I had forgotten. Where all this time was Flora? When I put the question to Miles, he played on a minute before answering and then could only say, Why, my dear, how do I know? breaking, moreover, into a happy laugh, which immediately after, as if it were a vocal accompaniment, he prolonged into incoherent, extravagant song. I went straight to my room, but his sister was not there. Then, before going downstairs, I looked into several others. As she was nowhere about, she would surely be with Mrs. Gross. I found her where I had found her the evening before, but she met my quick challenge with blank, scared ignorance. Of course, now she indeed might be with the maids, so that the immediate thing was to look for her without an air of alarm. This we promptly arranged between us. 
But when, ten minutes later, and in pursuance of our arrangement, we met in the hall, it was only to report on either side that after guarded inquiries we had altogether failed to trace her. For a minute there, apart from observation, we exchanged mute alarms. She'll be above in one of the rooms you haven't searched. No, she's at a distance. She has gone out. Without a hat? Oh, isn't that woman always without one? She's with her. She's with her. Oh, we must find them. And where's Master Miles? Oh, he's with Quint. They're in the schoolroom. Lord, miss! Oh, the trick's played. They've successfully worked their plan. He found the most divine little way to keep me quiet while she went off. Divine? Oh, infernal, then. He has provided for himself as well. But come. You leave him? So long with Quint? Yes. I don't mind that now. Because of your letter? I felt for my letter, drew it forth, held it up, and went and laid it on the great hall table. Luke will take it. I reached the house door and opened it. I was already on the steps. My companion still demurred. The storm of the night and the early morning had dropped, but the afternoon was damp and grey. I came down to the drive while she stood in the doorway. You go with no hat or coat? Oh, what do I care when the child has nothing? I can't wait to dress, and if you must do so, I leave you. Try, meanwhile, yourself upstairs. With him? On this, the poor woman promptly joined me. Chapter 19 We went straight to the lake, which had on its surface the old flat-bottomed boat moored there for our use. The usual place of embarkation was half a mile from the house, but I had an intimate conviction that, wherever Flora might be, she was not near home. She had not given me the slip for any small adventure, and since the day that I had shared with her by the pond, I had been aware in our walks of the quarter to which she most inclined. You're going to the water, miss. You think she's in? She may be, though the depth is, I believe, nowhere very great. But what I judge most likely is that she's on the spot from which the other day we saw together what I told you. When she pretended not to see? With that astounding self-possession? I've always been sure she wanted to go back alone. And now her brother has managed it for her. You suppose they really talk of them? I could meet this with a confidence. They say things that, if we heard them, would simply appall us. And if she is there... Yes? Then Miss Jessel is. Oh, beyond a doubt. You shall see. Oh, thank you. I went straight on without her. By the time I reached the pool, however, she was close behind me and I knew that the exposure of my society struck her as her least danger. She exhaled a moan of relief as we at last came in sight of the greater part of the water without a sight of the child. There was no trace of Flora on that nearer side of the bank and none on the opposite edge. We looked at the empty expanse and then I felt the suggestion of my friend's eyes. I knew what she meant. No. No, wait. She has taken the boat. Then where is it? Our not seeing it is the strongest of proofs. She has used it to go over. 
and then has managed to hide it. All alone, the child? Oh, she's not alone. And at such times, she's not a child. I scanned all the visible shore, then I pointed out that the boat might perfectly be in a small refuge formed by one of the recesses of the pool, an indentation masked for the hither side by a projection of the bank and by a clump of trees growing close to the water. But if the boat's there, where on earth's she? That's exactly what we must learn. I started to walk further. By going all the way round? Certainly, far as it is. It will take us but ten minutes. But it's far enough to have made the child prefer not to walk. She went straight over. Good Lord! The chain of my logic was ever too much for her. It dragged her at my heels even now, and when we had got halfway round, a devious, tiresome process, on ground much broken and by a path choked with overgrowth, I paused to give her breath. I sustained her with a grateful arm, assuring her that she might hugely help me, and this started us afresh, so that in the course of but few minutes more, we reached a point from which we found the boat to be where I had supposed it. It had been intentionally left as much as possible out of sight and was tied to one of the stakes of a fence that came just there, down to the brink, and that had been an assistance to disembarking. I recognised as I looked at the pair of short, thick oars, quite safely drawn up, the prodigious character of the feet for a little girl. But I had lived by this time too long among wonders. Oh, there was a gate in the fence through which we passed, and that brought us, after a trifling interval, more into the open. There she is! Flora, a short way off, stood before us on the grass and smiled, as if her performance was now complete. The next thing she did, however, was to stoop straight down and pluck, quite as if it were all she was there for, a big ugly spray of withered fern. She waited for us, not herself taking a step, and I was conscious of the rare solemnity with which we presently approached her. Oh, she smiled and smiled, and we met, but it was all done in a silence, by this time flagrantly ominous. Mrs. Gross was the first to break the spell. She threw herself on her knees and, drawing the child to her breast, clasped in a long embrace the little tender, yielding body. While this dumb convulsion lasted, I could only watch it, which I did the more intently, when I saw Flora's face peep at me over our companion's shoulder. Oh, it was serious now. The flicker had left it but it strengthened the pang with which I, at that moment, envied Mrs. Gross the simplicity of her relation. Still, all this while, nothing more passed between us, save that Flora had let her foolish fern again drop to the ground. What she and I had virtually said to each other was that pretexts were useless now. When Mrs. Gross finally got up, she kept the child's hand, so that the two were still before me, and the singular reticence of our communion was even more marked in the frank look she launched me. I'll be hanged, it said, if I'll speak. It was Flora who, gazing all over me in candid wonder, was the first. She was struck with our bare-headed aspect. Why? 
Where are your things? Where yours are, my dear. And where's Miles? There was something in the small valour of it that quite finished me. These three words from her were, in a flash, like the glitter of a drawn blade. The jostle of the cup that my hand for weeks and weeks had held high and full to the brim that now, even before speaking, I felt overflow in a deluge. I'll tell you, if you'll tell me, I heard myself say, then heard the tremor in which it broke. Well, what? Mrs. Grosser's suspense blazed at me, but it was too late now and I brought the thing out handsomely. Where is Miss Jessel? Chapter 20 Just as in the churchyard with Miles, the whole thing was upon us. Much as I had made of the fact that this name had never once between us been sounded, the quick smitten glare with which the child's face now received it fairly likened my breach of the silence to the smash of a pane of glass. It added to the interposing cry, as if to stay the blow that Mrs. Gross at the same instant uttered over my violence the shriek of a creature scared, or rather wounded, which in turn, within a few seconds, was completed by a gasp of my own. I seized my colleague's arm. She's there. She's there. Miss Jessel stood before us, on the opposite bank exactly as she had stood the other time. And I remember, strangely, as the first feeling now produced in me, my thrill of joy at having brought on a proof. She was there, and I was justified. She was there, and I was neither cruel nor mad. She was there for poor scared Mrs. Gross, but she was there most for Flora, and no moment of my monstrous time was perhaps so extraordinary as that in which I consciously threw out to her with the sense that pale and ravenous demon as she was, she would catch and understand it. An inarticulate message of gratitude. Mrs. Grocer's dazed blink across to where I pointed struck me as a sovereign sign that she too at last saw, just as it carried my own eyes to the child. The revelation then of the manner in which Flora was affected startled me. In truth, far more than it would have done to find her also merely agitated. Prepared and on her guard, as our pursuit had actually made her, she would repress any betrayal. To see her, without a convulsion of her small pink face, not even feign to glance in the direction of the prodigy I announced, but only instead of that turn at me an expression of hard, still gravity, an expression absolutely new and unprecedented, and that appeared to read and accuse and judge me. I gaped at her coolness, and then in the immediate need to defend myself, I called it passionately to witness. She's there, you little unhappy thing, there, 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 and you see her as well as you see me. 
I had said shortly before to Mrs. Gross that she was not at these times a child, and that description of her could not have been more strikingly confirmed than in the way in which, for all answer to this, she simply showed me, without a concession, an admission of her eyes, a countenance of deeper and deeper, of indeed suddenly quite fixed reprobation. I was by this time, if I can put the whole thing at all together, more appalled at what I may properly call her manner than at anything else, though it was simultaneously with this that I became aware of having Mrs. Gross also, and very formidably, to reckon with. My elder companion the next moment, at any rate, blotted out everything but her own flushed face and her loud, shocked protest, a burst of high disapproval. What a dreadful turn, to be sure, miss. Where on earth do you see anything? I could only grasp her more quickly yet, for even while she spoke, the hideous, plain presence stood undimmed and undaunted. It had already lasted a minute, and it lasted while I continued seizing my colleague, quite thrusting her at it and presenting her to it, to insist with my pointing hand. You don't see her exactly as we see. Oh, you mean to say you don't now? Now! Oh, she's as big as a blazing fire. Only look, dearest woman, look! She looked, even as I did, and gave me, with her deep groan of negation, repulsion, compassion, the mixture with her pity of her relief at her exemption, a sense touching to me even then that she would have backed me up if she could. I might well have needed that, for with this hard blow of the proof that her eyes were hopelessly sealed, I felt my own situation horribly crumble. I felt... I saw my livid predecessor press from her position on my defeat, and I was conscious more than all of what I should have from this instant to deal with in the astounding little attitude of Flora. Into this attitude Mrs. Gross immediately and violently entered, breaking, even while there pierced through my sense of ruin, a prodigious private triumph into breathless reassurance. She isn't there, little lady, and nobody's there. And uh, you never see nothing, my sweet. How can poor Miss Jessel, when poor Miss Jessel's dead and buried? We know, don't we, love? It's all a mere mistake and a worry and a joke, and uh, we'll go home as fast as we can. Our companion on this had responded with a strange, quick primness of propriety. And they were, again with Mrs. Gross on her feet, united, as it were, in pained opposition to me. Flora continued to fix me with her small mask of reprobation, and even at that minute I prayed to God to forgive me for seeming to see that, as she stood there holding tight to our friend's dress, her incomparable childish beauty had suddenly failed, had quite vanished. I've said it already, Oh, she was literally, she was hideously hard. She had turned common and almost ugly. I don't know what you mean. I see nobody. I see nothing. I never have. I think you're cruel. I don't like you. 
Then, after this deliverance, which might have been that of a vulgarly pert little girl in the street, she hugged Mrs. Gross more closely and buried in her skirts the dreadful little face. In this position she produced an almost furious wail. Take me away! Take me away! Oh, take me away from her! From me? From you! From you! Even Mrs. Gross looked across at me dismayed, while I had nothing to do but communicate again with the figure who stood on the opposite bank, without a movement, as rigidly still as if catching beyond the interval our voices. The wretched child had spoken exactly as if she had got from some outside source each of her stabbing little words, and I could therefore, in the full despair of all I had to accept, but sadly shake my head at her. Flora, if I had ever doubted, all my doubt would at present have gone. I've been living with the miserable truth, and now it has only too much closed around me. Of course I've lost you. I've interfered, and you've seen, under her dictation, the easy and perfect way to meet it. I've done my best, but I've lost you. Goodbye. Go! Go! In infinite distress, but mutely possessed of the little girl and clearly convinced that something awful had occurred, Mrs. Gross retreated by the way we had come as fast as she could move. On reaching the house, I had never so much as looked for the boy. I had simply gone straight to my room to change what I was wearing. Flora's little belongings had all been removed. When later, by the schoolroom fire, I was served with tea by the usual maid, I indulged on the article of my other pupil, in no inquiry whatever. He had his freedom now. He might have it to the end. Well, he did have it. And it consisted, in part at least, of his coming in at about eight o'clock and sitting down with me in silence. On the removal of the tea things, I had blown out the candles and drawn my chair closer. I was conscious of a mortal coldness and felt as if I should never again be warm. So when he appeared, I was sitting in the glow of my thoughts. He paused a moment by the door as if to look at me, then, as if to share them, came to the other side of the hearth and sank into a chair. We sat there in absolute stillness. Yet he wanted, I felt, to be with me. Chapter 21 Before a new day in my room had fully broken, my eyes opened to Mrs. Gross, who had come to my bedside with worse news. Flora was so markedly feverish that an illness was perhaps at hand. She had passed a night of extreme unrest, a night agitated above all by fears that had for their subject, not in the least her former but wholly her present governess. It was not against the possible re-entrance of Miss Jessel on the scene that she protested. It was conspicuously and passionately against mine. 
I was promptly on my feet, of course, and with an immense deal to ask. The more that my friend had discernibly now girded her loins to meet me once more. This I felt as soon as I had to put to her the question of her sense of the child's sincerity as against my own. She persists in denying to you that she saw or has ever seen anything? Ah, uh, miss, it isn't a matter on which I can push her. Yet it isn't either, I must say, as if I much needed to. It has made her, every inch of her, quite old. Oh, I see her perfectly from here. She resents for all the world, like some high little personage, the imputation on her truthfulness and, as it were, her respectability. Oh, Miss Jessel, indeed, she. Oh, she's respectable, the chit. The impression she gave me there yesterday was, I assure you, the very strangest of all. It was quite beyond any of the others. Oh, I did put my foot in it. She'll never speak to me again. Hideous and obscure as it all was, it held Mrs. Gross briefly silent. Then she granted my point with a frankness which I made sure had more behind it. I think indeed, miss, she never will. She do have a grand manner about it. And that manner is practically what's the matter with her now. She asks me every three minutes if I think you're coming in. I see. I see. Has she said to you since yesterday, except to repudiate her familiarity with anything so dreadful, a single other word about Miss Jessel? Not one, miss. And of course, you know, I, I took it from her by the leg that just then and there at least there was nobody. Rather. And naturally you take it from her still. I don't contradict her. What else can I do? Nothing in the world. You've the cleverest little person to deal with. They've made them, their two friends, I mean, still cleverer even than nature did. For it was wondrous material to play on. Flora has now her grievance, and she'll work it to the end. Yes, miss, but to what end? Why, that of dealing with me to her uncle. She'll make me out to him the lowest creature. And him who thinks so well of you. Oh, he has an odd way of proving it. But that doesn't matter. What Flora wants, of course, is to get rid of me. Never again to so much as look at you. So that what you've come to me now for is to speed me on my way? Look, I've a better idea. The result of my reflections... My going would seem the right thing, and on Sunday I was terribly near it. Yet that won't do. It's you who must go. You must take Flora. But where in the world? Away from here. Away from them. Away, even most of all now, from me. Straight to her uncle. Only to tell on you? No, not only. To, to leave me, in addition, with my remedy. And what? is your remedy your loyalty to begin with and then miles's do you think he won't if he has the chance turn on me yes i venture still to think it at all events i want to try 
Get off with his sister as soon as possible and leave me with him alone. I was amazed myself at the spirit I had still in reserve, and therefore perhaps a trifle the more disconcerted at the way in which, in spite of this fine example of it, she hesitated. There's one thing, of course. They mustn't, before she goes, see each other for three seconds. Do you mean that they have met? Uh, miss, I'm not such a fool as that. If I've been obliged to leave her three or four times, it has been each time with one of the maids, and at present, though she's alone, she's locked in safe. And yet... Oh, and yet... And yet what? Well, uh, are you so sure of the little gentleman? I'm not sure of anything but you. But I have, since last evening, a new hope. I think he wants to give me an opening. I do believe that he wants to speak. Last evening, in the firelight and the silence, he sat with me for two hours, as if it were just coming. Mrs. Gross looked hard, through the window, at the grey gathering day. And did it come? No. Though I waited and waited, I confess it didn't. And it was without a breach of the silence, or so much as a faint allusion to his sister's condition and absence, that we at last kissed for good night. All the same, I can't, if her uncle sees her, consent to his seeing her brother without my having given the boy, and most of all because things have got so bad, a little more time. What do you mean by more time? Well, a day or two, really to bring it out. He'll then be on my side, of which you see the importance. If nothing comes, I shall only fail, and you will at the most have helped me by doing on your arrival in town whatever you may have found possible. So I put it before her, but she continued for a little so inscrutably embarrassed that I came again to her aid. Unless, indeed, you really want not to go. I could see it in her face, at last clear itself. She put out her hand to me as a pledge. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go this morning. If you should wish still to wait, I would engage she shouldn't see me. No. No, it's the place itself. She must leave it. She held me a moment with heavy eyes, then brought out the rest. Your idea's the right one. I myself, miss... Well? I can't stay. The look she gave me with it made me jump at possibilities. Oh, you mean that since yesterday you have seen? She shook her head with dignity. I've heard. Heard? From that child. Horrors. There, on my honour, Miss Ship, she says things. But at this evocation she broke down. She dropped with a sudden sob upon my sofa and, as I had seen her do before, gave way to all the grief of it. It was quite in another manner that I, for my part, let myself go. Oh, thank God! 
Thank God. It so justifies me. It does that, miss. She's so horrible. Really shocking. And about me? About you, miss. Since you must have it, it's beyond everything for a young lady, and I I can't think wherever she must have picked it up. The appalling language she applied to me. Well, perhaps I ought to also, since I've heard some of it before. Yet I can't bear it. But I must go back. If you can't bear it. How can I stop with her, you mean? Why, just for that... To get her away, far from this, far from them. She may be different, but she may be free. Then, in spite of everything, you believe? In such doings, I believe. Yes, it was a joy, and we were still shoulder to shoulder. If I might continue sure of that, I should care but little what else happened. My support in the presence of disaster would be the same as it had been in my early need of confidence. And if my friend would answer for me honestly, I would answer for all the rest. On the point of taking leave of her nonetheless, I was to some extent embarrassed. There's one thing, of course, it occurs to me to remember. My letter giving the alarm will have reached town before you. Your letter won't have got there. Your letter never went. What then became of it? Goodness knows. Master Miles... Do you mean he took it? I mean that I saw yesterday when I came back with Miss Flora that it wasn't where you had put it. Later in the evening I had the chance to question Luke and he declared that he had neither noticed nor touched it. You see? Yes. I see that if Miles took it instead he probably will have read it and destroyed it. And... Don't you see anything else? It strikes me that by this time your eyes are open even wider than mine. I make out now what he must have done at school. He stole. Well, perhaps. He stole letters. I hope then it was to more purpose than in this case. The note, at any rate, that I put on the table yesterday will have given him so scant an advantage, for it contained only the bare demand for an interview, that he is already much ashamed of having gone so far for so little, and that what he had on his mind last evening was precisely the need of confession. Leave us. Leave us. I'll get it out of him. He'll meet me, he'll confess. If he confesses... He's saved. And if he's saved... Then you are. The dear woman kissed me on this, and I took her farewell. I'll save you without him. Chapter 22 Yet it was when she had got off, and I missed her on the spot, that the great pinch really came. If I had counted on what it would give me to find myself alone with Miles, I speedily perceived, at least, 
that it would give me a measure. No hour of my stay, in fact, was so assailed with apprehensions as that of my coming down to learn that the carriage containing Mrs. Gross and my younger pupil had already rolled out of the gates. Now I was, I said to myself, face to face with the elements. And for much of the rest of the day, while I fought my weakness, I could consider that I had been supremely rash. The maids and the men looked blank, the effect of which on my nerves was an aggravation until I saw the necessity of making it a positive aid. It was precisely, in short, by just clutching the helm, that I avoided total wreck, and I dare say that to bear up at all I became that morning very grand and very dry. I welcomed the consciousness that I was charged with much to do, and I caused it to be known as well that, left thus to myself, I was quite remarkably firm. I wandered with that manner for the next hour or two all over the place and looked, I have no doubt, as if I were ready for any onset. So, for the benefit of whom it might concern, I paraded with a sick heart. The person it appeared least to concern proved to be, till dinner, little Miles himself. My wanderings had given me, meanwhile, no glimpse of him. He had already disappeared when, on my way down, I pushed open his door and I learned below that he had breakfasted, in the presence of a couple of the maids, with Mrs. Gross and his sister. He had then gone out, as he said, for a stroll, than which nothing, I reflected, could better have expressed his frank view of the abrupt transformation of my office. What he would not permit this office to consist of was yet to be settled, there was a queer relief at all events, I mean for myself in especial, in the renouncement of one pretension. If so much had sprung to the surface, I scarce put it too strongly in saying that what had perhaps sprung highest was the absurdity of our prolonging the fiction that I had anything more to teach him. He had his freedom now. I was never to touch it again. I decreed that my meals with the boy should be served downstairs, so that I had been awaiting him in the ponderous pomp of the room outside of the window, of which I had had from Mrs. Gross, that first scared Sunday, my flash of something it would scarce have done to call light. Here at present I felt afresh, for I had felt it again and again, how my equilibrium depended on the success of my rigid will, the will to shut my eyes as tight as possible to the truth that what I had to deal with was, revoltingly, against nature. I could only get on at all by taking nature into my confidence and my account, by treating my monstrous ordeal as a push in a direction unusual, of course, and unpleasant, but demanding, after all, for a fair front, only another turn of the screw of ordinary human virtue. No attempt, nonetheless, could well require more tact than just this attempt to supply oneself all the nature. 
how could I put even a little of that article into a suppression of reference to what had occurred? How, on the other hand, could I make reference without a new plunge into the hideous obscure? Well, a sort of answer after a time had come to me, and it was so far confirmed as that I was met incontestably by the quickened vision of what was rare in my little companion. It was indeed as if he had found even now, as he had so often found at lessons, still some other delicate way to ease me off. The roast mutton was on the table, and I had dispensed with attendance. Miles, before he sat down, stood a moment with his hands in his pockets and looked at the joint, on which he seemed on the point of passing some humorous judgment. But what he presently produced was... I say, is she really very awfully ill? Little Flora? Not so bad, but that she'll presently be better. London will set her up. Bly had ceased to agree with her. Come here and take your mutton. He alertly obeyed me, carried the plate carefully to his seat, and, when he was established, went on. Did Bly disagree with her so terribly suddenly? Not so suddenly as you might think. One had seen it coming on. Then why didn't you get her off before? Before what? Before she became too ill to travel. Well, she's not too ill to travel. She only might have become so if she had stayed. This was just the moment to seize. The journey will dissipate the influence and carry it off. I see. I see. Miles settled to his repast with the charming little table manner that, from the day of his arrival, had relieved me of all grossness of admonition. Whatever he had been driven from school for, it was not for ugly feeding. He was irreproachable as always today, but he was unmistakably more conscious. He was discernibly trying to take for granted more things than he found without assistance quite easy. And he dropped into peaceful silence while he felt his situation. Our meal was of the briefest, mine a vain pretense, and I had the things immediately removed. While this was done, Miles stood again with his hands in his little pockets and his back to me, stood and looked out of the wide window through which that other day I had seen what pulled me up. We continued silent while the maid was with us, as silent, it whimsically occurred to me, as some young couple who, on their wedding journey at the inn, feel shy in the presence of the waiter. He turned round only when the waiter had left us. Well, so we're alone.
Chapter 23 Oh, more or less. Not absolutely. We shouldn't like that. No. I suppose we shouldn't. Of course, we have the others. We have the others. We have, indeed, the others. Yet even though we have them... He returned, still with his hands in his pockets and planted there in front of me. They don't much count, do they? It depends on what you call much. Yes. Everything depends. On this, however, he faced to the window again and presently reached it with his vague, restless, cogitating step. He remained there a while, with his forehead against the glass, in contemplation of the stupid shrubs I knew and the dull things of November. I had always my hypocrisy of work, behind which now I gained the sofa, steadying myself with it there, as I had repeatedly done at those moments of torment, that I have described as the moments of my knowing the children to be given to something from which I was barred. I sufficiently obeyed my habit of being prepared for the worst. But an extraordinary impression dropped on me as I extracted a meaning from the boy's embarrassed back. None other than the impression that I was not barred now. This inference grew in a few minutes to sharp intensity and seemed bound up with the direct perception that it was positively he who was. The frames and squares of the great window were a kind of image for him of a kind of failure. I felt that I saw him, at any rate, shut in or shut out. He was admirable, but not comfortable. I took it in with a throb of hope. Wasn't he looking through the haunted pane for something he couldn't see? And wasn't it the first time in the whole business that he had known such a lapse? The first, the very first. Oh, I found it a splendid portent. It made him anxious, though he watched himself. He had been anxious all day, and, even while in his usual sweet little manner he sat at table, had needed all his small strange genius to give it a gloss. When he at last turned round to meet me, it was almost as if this genius had succumbed. Well, I think I'm glad Bly agrees with me. You would certainly seem to have seen these twenty-four hours, a good deal more of it than for some time before. I hope that you've been enjoying yourself. Oh, yes. I've been ever so far. All around about. Miles and miles away. I've never been so free. Well, do you like it? Do you? more discrimination than I had ever heard two words contain. 
Before I had time to deal with that, however, he continued as if with the sense that this was an impertinence to be softened. Nothing could be more charming than the way you take it. For, of course, if we're alone together now, it's you that are alone most. But I hope you don't particularly mind. Having to do with you? Oh, my dear child, how can I help minding? Though I've renounced all claim to your company, you're so beyond me, I at least greatly enjoy it. What else should I stay on for? He looked at me more directly, and the expression of his face, graver now, struck me as the most beautiful I had ever found in it. You stay on? Just for that? Certainly. I stay on as your friend, and from the tremendous interest I take in you till something can be done for you that may be more worth your while. That needn't surprise you. My voice trembled so that I felt it impossible to suppress the shake. Don't you remember how I told you, when I came and sat on your bed the night of the storm, that there was nothing in the world I wouldn't do for you? Yes. Yes. He, on his side, more and more visibly nervous, had a tone to master. But he was so much more successful than I that... Laughing out through his gravity, he could pretend we were pleasantly jesting. Only that, I think, was to get me to do something for you. It was partly to get you to do something. But, you know, you didn't do it. Oh, yes. You wanted me to tell you something. That's it. Out. Straight out. What you have on your mind. Oh, you know. Then is that what you've stayed on for? He spoke with a gaiety through which I could still catch the finest little quiver of resentful passion. But I can't begin to express the effect upon me of an implication of surrender even so faint. It was as if what I had yearned for had come at last only to astonish me. Well, yes, I may as well make a clean breast of it. It was precisely for that. Do you mean now? Here? There couldn't be a better place or time. He looked round him uneasily, and I had the rare impression of the very first symptom I had seen in him of the approach of immediate fear. It was as if he were suddenly afraid of me, which struck me indeed as perhaps the best thing to make him. Yet in the very pang of the effort, I felt it vain to try sternness, and I heard myself the next instant so gentle as to be almost grotesque. You want so to go out again? Awfully. He smiled at me heroically, and the touching little bravery of it was enhanced by his actually flushing with pain. He had picked up his hat, which he had brought in, and stood twirling it in a way that gave me, 
even as I was just nearly reaching port, a perverse horror of what he was doing. I suppose I now read into our situation a clearness it couldn't have had at the time, for I seem to see our poor eyes, already lighted with some spark of a provision of the anguish that was to come. So we circled about, with terrors and scruples like fighters not daring to close. But it was for each other we feared. That kept us a little longer suspended and unbruised. I'll tell you everything. I mean, I'll tell you anything you like. You'll stay on with me and we shall both be all right and I will tell you. I will. But not now. Why not now? My insistence turned him from me and kept him once more at his window in a silence during which between us you might have heard a pin drop. I have to see Luke. I had not yet reduced him to quite so vulgar a lie, and I felt proportionately ashamed. But horrible as it was, his lies made up my truth. I achieved thoughtfully a few loops of my knitting. Well then, go to Luke and I'll wait for what you promise. Only in return for that, satisfy before you leave me one very much smaller request. Very much smaller? Yes, a mere fraction of the whole. Tell me, oh, my work preoccupied me and I was offhand. If yesterday afternoon, from the table in the hall, you took, you know, my letter. Chapter 24 My sense of how he received this suffered for a minute from something that I can describe only as a fierce split of my attention. A stroke that at first, as I sprang straight up, reduced me to the mere blind movement of getting hold of him, drawing him close and, while I just fell for support against the nearest piece of furniture, instinctively keeping him with his back to the window. The appearance was full upon us that I had already had to deal with here. Peter Quint had come into view like a sentinel before a prison. The next thing I saw was that from the outside, he had reached the window, and then I knew that, close to the glass and glaring in through it, he offered once more to the room his white face of damnation. It represents but grossly what took place within me at the sight, to say that on the second my decision was made. Yet I believe that no woman so overwhelmed ever in so short a time recovered her grasp of the act. It came to me in the very horror of the immediate presence that the act would be, seeing and facing what I saw and faced, to keep the boy himself unaware. The inspiration, I can call it by no other name, was that I felt how voluntarily, how transcendently I might. It was like fighting with a demon for a human soul, 
and when I had fairly so appraised it, I saw how the human soul, held out in the tremor of my hands at arm's length, had a perfect dew of sweat on a lovely childish forehead. The face that was close to mine was as white as the face against the glass, and out of it presently came a sound, not low nor weak, but as if from much farther away, that I drank like a waft of fragrance. Yes, I took it. At this, with a moan of joy, I enfolded, I drew him close, and while I held him to my breast, where I could feel in the sudden fever of his little body the tremendous pulse of his little heart, I kept my eyes on the thing at the window and saw it move and shift its posture. I have likened it to a sentinel, but its slow wheel for a moment was rather the prowl of a baffled beast. My present quickened courage, however, was such that not too much to let it through. I had to shade, as it were, my flame. Meanwhile, the glare of the face was again at the window, the scoundrel fixed as if to watch and wait. It was the very confidence that I might now defy him, as well as the positive certitude by this time of the child's unconsciousness that made me go on. What did you take it for? To see what you said about me. You opened the letter? I opened it. My eyes were now, as I held him off a little again, on Miles's own face, in which the collapse of mockery showed me how complete was the ravage of my uneasiness. What was prodigious was that at last, by my success, his sense was sealed and his communication stopped. He knew that he was in presence, but knew not of what and knew still less that I also was, and that I did know. And what did this strain of trouble matter, when my eyes went back to the window, only to see that the air was clear again? And, by my personal triumph, the influence quenched. There was nothing there. I felt that the cause was mine, and that I should surely get all. And you found nothing. 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 I kissed his forehead. It was drenched. So what have you done with it? I've burned it. Burned it? Is that what you did at school? At school? Did you take letters? Or other things? Other things? He appeared now to be thinking of something far off, and that reached him only through the pressure of his anxiety. Yet it did reach him. Did I steal? Was it for that you mightn't go back? Did you know I mightn't go back? I know everything. He gave me at this the longest and strangest look. Everything. Everything. Therefore, did you? No. I didn't steal. My face must have shown him I believed him utterly. Yet my hands, 
but it was for pure tenderness, shook him as if to ask him why, if it was all for nothing, he had condemned me to months of torment. What then did you do? He looked in vague pain all round the top of the room and drew his breath two or three times over, as if with difficulty. He might have been standing at the bottom of the sea and raising his eyes to some faint green twilight. Well, I said things. Only that? They thought it was enough. To turn you out for? Never truly had a person turned out, shown so little to explain it as this little person. He appeared to weigh my question, but in a manner quite detached and almost helpless. Well, I suppose I oughtn't. But to whom did you say them? I don't know. He almost smiled at me in the desolation of his surrender, which was indeed practically by this time so complete that I ought to have left it there. But I was infatuated. I was blind with victory, though even then the very effect that was to have brought him so much nearer was already that of added separation. Was it to everyone? No. It was only to... I don't remember their names. Were they then so many? No. Only a few. Those I liked. Those he liked? I seemed to float not into clearness, but into a darker obscure. And within a minute, there had come to me out of my very pity the appalling alarm of his being, perhaps, innocent. It was, for the first instant, confounding and bottomless, for if he were innocent, what then on earth was I? Paralysed while it lasted by the mere brush of the question, I let him go a little so that, with a deep-drawn sigh, he turned away from me again, which, as he faced toward the clear window, I suffered, feeling that I had nothing now there to keep from him. And did they repeat what you said? He was soon at some distance from me, still breathing hard and again with the air, though now without anger for it, of being confined against his will. Once more, as he had done before, he looked up at the dim day as if, of what had hitherto sustained him, nothing was left but an unspeakable anxiety. Oh, yes, they must have repeated them to those they liked. And these things came round? To the master. Oh, yes, but I didn't know they'd tell. The masters? They didn't. They've never told. That's why I ask you. He turned to me again, his little, beautiful, fevered face. Yes. It was too bad. Too bad? What I suppose I sometimes said. To write home. I can't name the exquisite pathos 
of the contraction given to such a speech by such a speaker. I only know that the next instant I heard myself throw off with homely force stuff and nonsense. But the next after that I must have sounded stern enough. What were these things? My sternness was all for his judge, his executioner, yet it made him avert himself again, and that movement made me, with a single bound and an irrepressible cry, spring straight upon him. For there again, against the glass, as if to blight his confession and stay his answer, was the hideous author of our woe, the white face of damnation. I felt a sick swim at the drop of my victory, and all the return of my battle, so that the wildness of my veritable leap only served as a great betrayal. I saw him from the midst of my act meet it with a divination, and on the perception that even now he only guessed and that the window was still to his own eyes free, I let the impulse flame up to convert the climax of his dismay into the very proof of his liberation. No more! No more! No more! As I tried to press him against me to my visitant. Is she here? Miles panted as he caught with his sealed eyes the direction of my words. Then, as his strange she staggered me, and with a gasp I echoed it. Miss Jessel! Miss Jessel! With a sudden fury he gave me back. I seized, stupefied his supposition. Some sequel to what he had done to Flora... But this made me only want to show him that it was better still than that. Oh, it's not Miss Jessel, but it's at the window straight before us. It's there, the coward horror. There for the last time. At this, after a second in which his head made the movement of a baffled dog's on ascent, and then gave a frantic little shake for air and light, he was at me in a white rage. Bewildered, glaring vainly over the place and missing wholly, though it now to my sense, filled the room like the taste of poison, the wide, overwhelming presence. It's he. Whom do you mean by he? Peter Quint, you devil. Where? They are in my ears still. His supreme surrender of the name and his tribute to my devotion... What does he matter now, my own? What will he ever matter? I have you, but he has lost you forever. Then for the demonstration of my work, there, there. But he had already jerked straight round, stared, glared again, and seen but the quiet day. With the stroke of the loss I was so proud of, he uttered the cry of a creature hurled over an abyss, and the grasp with which I recovered him might have been that of catching him in his fall. I caught him. Yes, I held him. It might be imagined with what a passion. But at the end of a minute, I began to feel what it truly was that I held. We were alone with the quiet day, and his little heart dispossessed, had stopped. Thank you for listening to MTC Audio Lab. 
The Turn of the Screw by Henry James was directed by Sarah Goods, with performances by Lawrence Boxall, Mark Downey, Robert Menzies, and Catherine Tonkin. Sound design, engineering, and theme music by Clements Williams. Produced by the team at MTC. Enjoyed this series? Find more Audio Lab episodes or learn how you can support Melbourne's home of theatre at mtc.com.au.